Please rise for the reading of God's Word. From Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Hear now God's Word. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power, to me, who am less than the least of all the saints. This grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Thus far the reading of God's word, and all God's people said. Imagine that you received in the mail a letter requesting your appearance at a meeting at a law office. The letter is a mystery, and you're not quite sure what this is all about. But you're somewhat curious and perhaps a little bit interested, so you decide to attend. At the meeting, the letter is opened, and a letter is read, and in that letter you discover that a long-lost uncle has died, and he has left a last will and testament for all of his heirs. You're not sure what that uncle was worth, but at first your expectations are low. To your utter shock and surprise, you discover that you are the legitimate heir of the largest fortune in the world. Your whole life just suddenly changed. But it will take a while for that reality to soak in. Well, I'd like to point out that this story is not simply an introduction to a sermon or it's simply a metaphor. If you are a true Christian, then you really are the heir to the richest man ever. The fact, that fact should be prominent and it should be consistent in your thinking and your perspective. It will cause you to see everything differently. The Apostle Paul recognizes that he has been entrusted with this mystery, with this message, with this good news. He is the minister, he says. He is working in service of others. He is the messenger who has been given the privilege of delivering this good news of the benefit of the gospel. This was especially true regarding the Gentiles who he had already pointed out had been aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise and without hope and without God in the world. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones comments on the place of the Christian ministry. So Paul here is a minister, a servant. He's serving others by delivering this good news about their being heirs, about their receiving the riches of Christ. And so Lloyd-Jones comments about ministers in general, and he says, and here he gives a wonderful picture 
of the Christian ministry as a divine calling. Conceivably, this is perhaps the first thing the Christian church needs to recapture at the present time. That the church counts for so little in the modern world is largely the result of her failure to realize the origin and the character of the ministerial calling. The whole idea of the ministry has become debased. It has often been regarded as a profession. The eldest son in a family goes perhaps into the Navy and another into the Army and another into Parliament and then the remaining son goes into the ministry. Others think of a minister as a man who organizes games and pleasant entertainments for young people, one who visits or has a pleasant cup of tea with older people. Such conceptions of the Christian ministry have become far too current. They are a travesty. The minister is a herald of the glad tidings. He is a preacher of the gospel. It is largely because the true conception of the work of a minister has become debased that the ministry has lost its authority and counts for so little in the present time. Pray God that at a time such as this, men may be brought back to this old, this New Testament conception of the ministry. Paul is actually stunned that this opportunity has given, been given to him. And he says this, To me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. He sees it as a privilege. The kingdom of God didn't need him. But God was gracious in using him. He knew where he came from. He knew that he got his start <coughs> as Saul of Tarsus. This murderous blasphemer who was arrested in his tracks and turned around by Jesus Christ. It was all grace from the beginning. From the beginning to the end. We should notice in this text how he keeps on speaking of the gift of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God, given to me by the effective working of His power, to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. And this was accomplished, not lightly, he says, but by the effective working of God's power. It was nothing but the enthusiastic power of God that changed this Christ-hater into a Christ-follower. We are helpless and hopeless in ourselves. And Paul wants us to know that even ministers are part of the gracious gift of God. In 1 Corinthians 2, 3-5, Paul writes about how that same power that changed him was still working through the message of the Gospel. He says, I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Is that something that you know about? You've heard a lot of sermons, most of you. 
But have you felt, have you experienced, have you known the power of God in you? Has that word come to you as though it were only for you and directed for you and to you? And has it had a work in you to change you? That's the power of God's word. It is something that you must experience, you must feel, and we shouldn't be afraid of those things. It is objective. It is true. It is historic, but it also impacts me. It affects my emotions, my feelings, my desires, my interests. All of that should be stirred up. And if it hasn't been, then there's something terribly wrong. Has God gotten a hold of you by His power and transformed you into something new? Are you in pursuit of holiness? Because Hebrews 12 says, Without which no one shall see the Lord, looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, that gift of God. Now Paul goes now to speak about, he closes this section we read today with this phrase, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now what Paul says he was called to preach was exactly that. Nothing short of that. Here he is in prison. Here he is writing to a group of people who are being persecuted, who are a minority, who might be discouraged. And he says, I'm going to write and tell you some good news. I'm going to tell you about the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now that is packed tight and full, and we dare not rush past a statement like that. Much of what passes for preaching in the church has been anything but a declaration of the unsearchable riches of Christ. We hear a lot about current events and social concerns, about politics and economics, environment, international affairs, wars, terrorism. These are all important topics and they should be seen and they should be discussed in biblical terms. But they are often pursued apart from Christ and therefore are futile. Neither is it the church's task to preach patriotism, though it is often done so. Loyalty to country can be, often is, a good thing, but it is not the main thing. And it should never be confused or blended with the unsearchable riches of Christ. The world has always been in trouble, and the only real remedy for that trouble is Christ. That's what Jesus declares about himself. That's what the whole Bible declares. And if you've committed yourself to being a follower of Jesus, that's what you believe as well. He is the only answer. We're not preaching to try to get people to be good or to be moral. There are many who labor to produce an ethical and a moral world. The public schools, for example, were created specifically with this goal in mind. (coughs) Horace Mann wrote in the Common School Journal, 1841, one of the founders of what we call the public school, they call the common school. Here's what he promised apart from the riches of Christ. 
The common school is the institution which can receive and train up children in the elements of all good knowledge and of virtue before they are subjected to the alienating competitions of life. This institution is the greatest discovery ever made by man. Oh, it gets better. In two grand characteristic attributes, he says, it is super eminent over all others. First, in its universality, for it is capacious enough to receive and cherish in its paternal bosom every child that comes into the world. And second, in the timeliness and the aid it proffers, its early seasonal supplies of counsel and guidance, making security anodate danger. Other social organizations are curative and remedial. This is a preventative and an antidote. They come to heal diseases and wounds, this to make physical and moral frame less vulnerable to them. Let the common or public school be expanded to its uh, capabilities. Let it be worked with efficiency of which it is susceptible. And here, nine-tenths of the crimes and the penal code will become obsolete. The long catalog of human ills would be abridged. More would walk more safely by day. Every pillow would be more inviolable by night. Property, life, and character held by stronger tenure. All rational hopes respecting the future brightened. Now you feel better already, don't you? The church is called to preach Christ as the only way, the only truth, and the life. These are the riches of Christ. Christ himself is the primary treasure. It's what he does. It's what he accomplishes. It's what he gives that matters. It's not what we do or accomplish that gets us nowhere. All the riches are in him. He is the incarnate God. He is fully man and fully God. Two natures in one person. He is the only mediator between God and man. Jesus said, John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Colossians 1, 16-18, For by Him, by Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. And He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. He might be First place, Colossians 2, 2-4, attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. 
I want us to focus for a moment on the word unsearchable. 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. See, we have a glimpse of Christ and His riches. But there is still so, so much more to be discovered. We can't comprehend, but we can go deeper and deeper. Paul continued to be amazed. There is always another roomful, and another, and another, and another. For all eternity, we will be discovering more and more. In 2 Corinthians 9.15, Paul writes, Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. In Ephesians 3.20, he will speak of it this way, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask or think, according to the power that works in us. His riches are not only glorious, they're endless. Men and women throughout history, century after century, have been describing them, but there's still much more to be described. And while we can't find all of them, we can certainly get started. He gives us knowledge. He gives us understanding. He gives us wisdom. You see, the world is just full of perplexing problems. Where did we come from? Who are we? Why are we here? Where are we going? You remember what Paul said in chapter 1 of Ephesians? Verses 7-10, through In Him... We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and understanding, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven which are, and which are on earth in Him. That answers a lot of those big questions. Where do we come from? Why are we here? And where are we going? How can I as a sinner be made right with God? Second Corinthians 5.21 For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Righteousness is part of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Jesus said, I've come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. In John 6.35, he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Paul had come to grasp what it meant and how it affected his life uh, here and now, and, and, he, and therefore he could write this, For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. <laughs> Either way I go. Some of Christ's riches include rest and peace. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world uh, gives do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And in the midst of the trials and tribulations of the world... In the midst of our own trials and tribulations, he gives us joy. John 16, 
Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Philippians 4, 11-13. And what about him giving us the ability uh, to be content in all circumstances? In Philippians 4, he says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound everywhere. And I know everywhere and in all things. That's pretty comprehensive, right? Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That Paul's just full of platitudes, isn't he? Just all kind of little meaningless sayings. Unless you really believe this, in which case it changes everything, in which case he really could face every situation every place, every time, everything, and Christ really did strengthen him. As already mentioned, even in the face of death, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Romans 8, 16-17, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. No matter what happens in the world, no matter what happens in our life. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, never diminishes whatsoever. And it's reserved for you in heaven who are kept by the power of God, through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Well, I have only scratched the surface of the unsearchable riches of Christ. So, are you unhappy? Are you depressed? Are you enjoying His riches? Do you even think about his riches? Do you ever look to see what's in the account? Have you ever looked to see what's yours? Have you given up? Are you thinking about quitting? Have you forgotten what he has given to you? The unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ? Do you remember what Jesus said to the church at Laodicea? And I think he could say to many of us, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcome and sat down with my Father on His throne. Friends, you are not poor. Is Christ the answer to the world's problems? 
And can the world see in you the riches of Christ? Let's pray. Father, you have poured out your grace upon each of us. You have given and given and given. You have worked your power in us and for us, not once only, but many, many times. You continue to give us your grace and to lavish upon us the unsearchable riches of Christ. And yet we often remain ignorant and forgetful. We frequently languish in self-pity instead of rejoicing in and for all things. We are discontent and depressed and discouraged. Give us, we pray, eyes to see the treasure that surrounds us in Christ, so that regardless of the immediate circumstances which we are under, we shall be set at liberty in Christ and able to see beyond the circumstances, count our blessings, and be encouraged. Amen. Tim Keller recently wrote uh, a short essay titled, You Can't Really Know Jesus by Yourself. He said, community is the key to true spirituality as we grow to know God by learning to know one another in relationships. In a famous passage, C.S. Lewis describes a very close friendship between himself Charles Williams and Ronald Tolkien, better known as J.R.R. Tolkien. After Charles Williams died, Williams died, Lewis made this observation. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Caroline joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him, quote, to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Hence, true friendship is the least jealous of loves. Two friends delight to be joined by a third and three by a fourth. We possess each friend not less but more as the number of those with whom we share him increases. In this friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven. For every soul seeing him, that is Christ, in her own way, communicates that unique vision to all the rest. That, says an old author, is why the seraphim in Isaiah's vision are crying, holy, 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 to one another. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall all have. And then Keller resumes, Lewis's point is that even a human being is too rich and multifaceted a being to be fully known one-on-one. You think you know someone, but you alone can't bring out all that is in a person. You need to see the person with others. And if this is true with another human being, how much more so with the Lord? You can't really know Jesus 
by yourself. And so we come to the table together to see him. To join together and to see and to share and commune with him and to commune with one another. O Lord, you are the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. You are the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To you be the honor and eternal dominion. We bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We praise the glory of your grace that chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. We thank you that in love you predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. We rejoice that we have been sealed in Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. We worship and adore you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may know the hope of your calling the riches of the glory of our inheritance, and the surpassing greatness of your power toward us in Jesus Christ. All of this you have brought about in Christ when you raised him from the dead and seated him at your right hand in the heavenly places, and you bestowed on us the unsearchable riches of Christ. Go with us now and enable us to live lives of confident gratitude. Bless this day, this feast, and our rest. By the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. Amen.